Good morning. Welcome again to Mac Avenue Community Church. Uh, for those of you who do not know me, my name is Jonathan Demers, and I am one of the elders here at Mac. I am privileged to serve alongside Pastor Eric, Pastor Leon, uh, Alex, who is serving in the nursery, and Alvin. Uh, it is an honor for us to serve in that capacity. Uh, this is a really sweet time of our service where we get to dive into the Word, and we continue uh, in a series that we are doing for Lent. Lent is a season of reflection. Uh, and a time to prepare ourselves for what our lead pastor refers to as the Super Bowl Sunday of Christianity Easter, uh, the day where we can all celebrate the work that Jesus has done in our lives and what he will do in the lives of others. Uh, and so we are going through a series of I am statements, statements that Jesus makes uh, about himself, different metaphors that he uses uh, to show that he is different than any of us because he is God and man in one. And last week uh, we went through one of those statements that was the uh, I am the bread of life statement. Pastor Eric led us through that passage. Uh, and today we are going to be studying the second I am statement, which is Jesus proclaiming that he is the light of the world. So James, if you could throw that first slide up, um, that is going to be our focus. No problem. Issue with the slides. Been back there, done that. So we're going to be in John 8, verse 12. Uh, so we will have the slides up eventually, but for now, go ahead and turn there in your Bible. Uh, we're going to be there, but we're also going to be all throughout the Old and New Testament today. Uh, and I will be guiding us through that process. I will have what is essentially a manuscript version of this sermon online afterwards. So if you prefer to take notes, you're welcome to, but you don't need to. The slides will be online, as will uh, a basically a word-for-word -word version of this sermon. Uh, my, my desire is to serve you guys. What's that? Page 581 in the thinner one, and Leon, 894 in the black Bible in your pew. So with that, please join me in prayer. Father, we are privileged to be here. We count it an honor to be able to hold copies of your word in our hands, Lord, when for thousands of years your teaching to your people was passed down from generation to generation orally, Lord. It was, it was taught, it was spoken of, but here we have it in our hands. We can see it for ourselves, we can study it, we can examine it. We know that your Holy Spirit has guided its translation throughout all of this. And now we can look at the words that you said to your people almost 2,000 years ago and examine ourselves. Whether we have not chosen to follow you, Lord, for those of us who are here who have not made that commitment, who have not uh, been translated out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Those of us in that standing, Lord, have the opportunity now to see what you have said to your people, and for those of us who have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the light, we have the opportunity to examine ourselves, to ask ourselves what it means to be an ambassador of the light, to be, even as you said, Father, in Matthew 5, us, the church, as the light of the world. May we not take that opportunity for granted. May we not sit here and see this as just one more Sunday, Lord, but as an opportunity to worship you through our attention, through our time, through our dedication to knowing who you are, and as we know you, being the church more faithfully and more fully. Amen. So again, family, we are going to be in John chapter 8, uh, verses 12. Uh, let's see. And these are the words that we begin with this morning. And Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
And with those words, we are drawn into the second statement of Jesus. Not just a statement about him, though, but a statement about a conflict that has been happening from one end of the Old Testament all the way to the very back of the New Testament. It is something that has been painted from one end of the biblical tapestry all the way to the other. This cosmic battle between the light and the dark. And this is a battle that we know of. And as we go through the sermon today, we're going to be covering things that many of us know. Even if we're not students of the Bible, there's a darkness in this world that we know exists. A darkness that's out there. A darkness that allows for some of the tragedies that have been littering the news this week to occur. And we also know that there's a darkness inside of us. A darkness that pulls us to do things that we know we don't want to do. And yet we find ourselves doing it. And then at the same time, we know that there's a light. We know that there's a way out, that there has to be a way for us to be rescued from that darkness outside of us and the darkness inside of us. And we're going to be examining those things today. And for those of us in the church, we're going to be examining what it means to be the light of the world, even as Jesus declares himself to be the light of the world. We'll see in this statement that this is a challenge to us who are believers, that this is an invitation to us who are not. And when we're faced with fear and doubt and tragedy, we will know the truth and we'll be able to see how we can escape the darkness, not by our own efforts, but by the efforts of the Father. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this section, the sermon in four different parts. We're going to start by looking at the context of the passage, which I've titled The Confusion. Then we're going to examine what the darkness is that Jesus is speaking of. We'll then examine what the light is. And then we'll end with a challenge, again, for those who are not believers and for those who are So beginning in that first section, um, it's important to see how this passage actually connects back to the passage that Pastor Eric spoke on last week. He was uh, primarily examining John 6, and we're going to quickly run from John 6 all the way up to our verse today, John 8, 12. And what we're going to see is there are four different groups of people illustrated at each major part of the Bible from the Gospel of John in the middle of chapter 6 all the way through uh, to John chapter 8, verse 12. And each of those groups are marked by a confusion about Jesus. They are confused about who he is. And the first people that shows that confusion are his followers. And this is the passage that Pastor Eric walked us through last week. You'll see that after Jesus feeds 5,000 of his followers with only five loaves and two fish, and after he walks across the water and saves his closest 12 disciples, he teaches that he is the bread of life and that his followers need him. They need to depend on him in order to truly live. But the people who are listening to him understand what Jesus is to be saying literally. They think they must actually eat his flesh and drink his blood. And they say that it's a hard saying, which I think that's a pretty hard saying too, if that's what you understand Jesus to be meaning. That's not what he was saying. And he rebukes them and he says that you will not be able to know me unless the Father introduces you to me, unless the Father makes that connection. And at those words, almost all of Jesus' followers leave. The thousands and thousands of people who have been following him leave in confusion, except for the twelve. And you have Peter uh, at towards the end of John chapter 6 saying, To whom else will we go, Jesus? You are the one who has the words of eternal life. So that's the first group that's confused. Then we see another group at the beginning of John chapter 7, and that's his family. At the beginning of John 7, we actually see Jesus speaking with his brothers. And his brothers invite Jesus to Jerusalem to perform miraculous works and to show and reveal himself for who he is. But you also see in verse 1 of John 7 that Jesus is aware that he is under surveillance, that to go to Jerusalem and to reveal himself in that way would be dangerous, that he would likely face persecution and religious arrest from the Pharisees. And so he is not willing to go with his brothers. And 
His brothers probably knew that he would have been in danger if he had left. But you'll notice, I think it's verse 4 or verse 5, that even his brothers do not believe that Jesus is God in this case. And so they're using this even as an opportunity to try and test Jesus and see if he really is who he says he is. And Jesus makes very clear to them at the end of this section of our reading. He says, I'm not hated because I teach heresy. I'm hated because I testify against the evil that is in this world. And so his brothers leave for the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. And that brings us to the third group of people that are confused by Jesus. At this point in John 7, Jesus does eventually go to the Feast of Tabernacles, but he does not immediately reveal himself. He instead goes and observes. And what he observes is that many people are confused about him. They're confused about who he claims to be. Some think that he's a prophet. Some think that he's the Messiah. Some think that he's a fraud. And Jesus hears this, and he hears this, and then he steps up in the temple, and he begins to teach. He doesn't perform miracles, but he begins to teach. And the people are amazed by his wisdom and mastery of the scriptures. They are astonished at how he's able to pull so many different things together. And what had been a controversy back in John chapter 5 of him raising a man from uh, paralysis on the Sabbath is now understood by the people because Jesus is able to explain why it was appropriate for him to do that. So that's the people who then exhibited a, a sort of confusion and at the same time amazement. And that leads to the final group of people who exhibit confusion, and that is his enemies, specifically the Pharisees, who show up towards the middle of John chapter 7. The Pharisees, back in verse 32 of John 7, hear the mutterings of the people. They hear that they're astonished. They actually hear that the people believe the Pharisees approve of Jesus, because the Pharisees have not explicitly condemned Jesus at this point. There hasn't been sort of an open announcement to the Jews. And so the people think, well, maybe they think he's the Messiah as well. The Pharisees try to make that crystal clear that they do not think he's the Messiah. And so they gather the officers of the temple and they send them to arrest Jesus. And the officers arrive and they see Jesus and they don't arrest him. And they don't arrest him because they are amazed by what Jesus is teaching, just like the other people. And when they come back, they come back empty handed without Jesus. When the Pharisees question the officers, they say, we were amazed by what he said. We've never heard anyone speak like him before. And at that point, an individual named Nicodemus also speaks up. Many of you may be familiar with Nicodemus. He also was a Pharisee. But earlier in this gospel, in John chapter 3, Jesus approaches him. And he, under the cover of night, teaches the gospel to this Pharisee. That's where the famous John 3.16 verse comes from. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, that whoever would believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Nicodemus is struck by that teaching, and when he speaks up at this meeting, when the officers have come back without Jesus, Nicodemus says, before we judge this man, why don't we listen to him? Why don't we hear what he has to say? But the Pharisees aren't really interested in that. Instead, they go out and they confront Jesus in the temple. And they bring with them a woman who is caught in adultery. This is another famous scene in the Gospels. And in their attempt to confront and humiliate Jesus, they themselves leave publicly humiliated and confronted. Jesus shows the hypocrisy of their own sin. He does what he told his brothers that he would do. He testifies to the evil in the world. And the Pharisees are left further confused about Jesus. Now, I think it's helpful to see how those four groups of people are linked because they all contribute to this theme of confusion. Different groups of people all experiencing confusion right before Jesus says in John 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. And I think that confusion is helpful to see, not because the statement that Jesus gives 
remedies all their confusion. Although in chapter 8, verse 30, many do come to believe in Jesus. Um, But I think instead what it does is it illustrates the confusion, the darkness that Jesus is speaking about in chapter 8, verse 12. And that's where we're going to go now, is to examining, examining what this means, this concept of darkness, which I think in part comes from the idea of confusion. And while I would like to begin with the light, while I would like to begin with the good news, I think it's really important that we start first by understanding what the problem is, what the darkness is, before we can begin to really truly understand what Jesus is bringing to us as the light of the world. Notice that he says in verse 12, that whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. That idea of darkness, that idea of light, they are carried throughout the gospel of John. They are major themes in this specific gospel. And John kicks off that theme at the very beginning of his book in chapter 1. He says, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Light and darkness, again, these are metaphors that define John's gospel. And so, in order to understand darkness, I think we need to think about it in two ways. As I alluded to earlier in the sermon, the darkness which is outside of us, And also the darkness that is within us, the darkness inside of us. And when I say the darkness outside of us, what I'm speaking of, what Jesus is speaking of, what I believe the Old and New Testament is speaking of, is the default state of our sinful world. The fact that all around us, the default condition of our world is a condition of darkness. Even the passages that we'll study later, when they speak about light, speak about light invading darkness. They assume the darkness is there first, And that the light enters into it. We see in Genesis chapter 1 at the creation of the world. That one of the very first things that happens is that light enters into the world. And it works against disorder and confusion and emptiness. We see in Proverbs that darkness is an environment that we live in. And we see in the prophet Isaiah um, that darkness is one where you cannot see where you're going. You, You have no idea what is in front of you. You're stumbling around and confused. It's like if uh, you've been in a dark cave before, and this is a pretty dark cave, you can barely even see it on the screen. Um, I had the privilege of being involved with a, a pretty cool camp in high school, and they would take us caving and spelunking, and all that that means is going into a really dark, muddy cave and making a big mess, but you basically climb around in the dark, and unless you bring a light, you cannot see the hand that is in front of you. It is that dark. It is truly pitch black. That is what the Bible is speaking of when it's talking about the darkness that is outside of us. It's so dark that when you're trying to walk around, you don't know if you're about to walk into something. You don't know if there's tons of space in front of you. You literally have no idea where you're going and your arms are outreached, hoping that you don't hurt yourself, hoping that you can figure out how to get one step in front of the other. That's what our world is like in its default state, thanks to sin, thanks to corruption, Thanks especially to Satan. Satan in this world is the master of this dark outside that we live in. He's referred to in Ephesians 2 as the ruler of the power of the air. He's referred to in 2 Corinthians 4 as the God of this age. In the very gospel that we're studying right now, he's referred to three times by Jesus himself as the ruler of the world. 
And in the Gospels, Satan actually offers all of that to Jesus to try to tempt him to betray his mission to be a sacrifice that we need in this world. This is something that our politicians and our policymakers and our professors and all our TED Talks do not get after. They don't understand that in all of this darkness that we see, that there is a demonic force that is managing unseen spiritual powers, that is working behind the scenes, pulling strings, doing evil, and causing us and leading us to do those evil things, pulling at our sinful natures, pulling at all the forces of the world. What Satan is doing is he's invading every cultural institution, every facet of our society, every social media post. He is involved behind the scenes trying to make life as difficult for us as possible, making it feel as if the world is constantly, constantly against us. And for those of us who follow Jesus, that is doubly true. And that is precisely why we encounter, I I would consider, an additional amount of doubt and fear and hardship, especially in this community. And for those of you who have been here for a long time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, because of what evil is doing, because of what Satan is doing, we can have tragedies like this week where Syrians, two or three hundred Syrians were bombed in their own country, killed by their own government. This is how we can have uh, what, what Bernadette is working against in our community. Un, unfair property tax foreclosures that predominantly affect people of color in this city. Foreclosures that should never have happened in the first place if the law were followed. This is how you can have families in Flint who are still paying bills that are more expensive than what we pay here in Detroit for water that is still not clean. This is how we can have students who are unfortunately killed in their own classroom. Because there is an evil force working behind the scenes, making life as difficult as possible for us in this world. And eventually, men and women do succumb to that environment. If he, Paul talks about this in Philippians, uh, as well as in Ephesians 5. He talks about people who have succumbed to this environment as people who live lives of shame. Consider people who live apart from God, who do not have the Holy Spirit working in their hearts. They do foul things. They do things at night, things that they would not want people to know about, things that they are ashamed of. They cheat, they lie, they steal, they indulge in sin. And family, this should break our hearts. This should grieve us to our core. We should see sin in the world. We should see what Satan is doing behind the scenes. And we should be moved to action. We should be moved to intervene, to tell good news. But if we're honest, At best, we're desensitized to it, and at worst, sometimes we're approving, and we're participating ourselves in that succumbing to this outside darkness. And that may be harsh, family, but but look at how Paul speaks about these people who are apart from God in Philippians 3. He says, "For, For as often I as often told you before now, and tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. And again, Paul speaks of of those acts in Ephesians 5 as unfruitful deeds of darkness. Again, that metaphor of darkness. Think about what that means to be unfruitful. What is gained when we succumb to the darkness outside and we lie and cheat and do those things that we're afraid to do in the day? What do we gain from that? What is our return on investment? When we give in to drunkenness or substance abuse or indulgence of wealth or extramarital sex, what do we have to gain? Anything noble? Uplifting? 
a legacy that we can leave for next generations? No, of course not. These are unfruitful works of darkness. And men and women who spend their lives inflaming these kinds of lusts awake the next day with a headache and a soul ache to show for it. They know, they know that this is wrong. We know that this is wrong when we give in in this way. But let me be clear, and I want to make sure that this is not missed. It is not just the deeds that I have described, which are deeds in the darkness. You may never have said to yourself that you've gotten drunk or committed a crime or cheated on your spouse or done what those things might be as as dark. You might even think that you're a pretty decent person. I tend to think I'm a pretty decent person, but let me be clear. Decency is not to be confused with light. John is very clear in his epistle in 1 John. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and God is not among us. Many of us live for things that are so small, so petty, that our lives can become microscopic. We find our joy sometimes and purpose in cleanliness and order and safety and financial stability and respectability and a house. I mean, a house. We, some of us live for houses. What a small, simple thing to live for. Especially in this community, when we drive around and we see houses that are falling apart. And some of us spend so much time trying to make our house so perfect. That is such a small thing to live for, family. That is the same kind of darkness that Paul is speaking about in Philippians and Ephesians. Thank you, brother. So, to use a little bit of humor... Speaking of uh, my own idols, <laughs> I would like to note for the record that this is the 11th sermon that I've preached, and I have not once used the Tom Brady metaphor analogy at any point, so I think I can cash in. Uh, Tom Brady is, I'm obviously a fan, most people know this, uh, he, he's a football player, uh, he was originally a sixth round draft pick, a perennial backup who kind of stumbled his way into winning three Super Bowl championships in four years, which was pretty astonishing to most people. Um, and in 2005, after he won those championships, he was interviewed by 60 Minutes, and, and they wanted to know just how he was dealing with going from kind of a, a rags-to-riches story. Um, oh, that's the wrong picture. How did that picture get in there? James, you put that picture in there with the five rings? Oops. Oh, there we go. That's the picture I was looking for. <laughs> so... So during, during this interview, uh, there are a lot of really strange comments that Brady makes. You would think a guy who's uh, dating a supermodel at this time, who uh, has won three Super Bowls, who's making millions of dollars, who, who was a guy who hadn't even started as a quarterback in his own high school football team uh, until he was a senior, would just be thrilled with the way that his life was going. But he makes a couple of strange statements, one in particular that has become famous. So he says this, he says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? Maybe other people would say this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. But to me, I think, God, there's got to be more than this. The irony of that statement. 60 Minutes asked him, what's the answer? Brady said, I wish I knew. And now you've got a man who is so consumed with football. He's doing things that no other football player has ever done. And, and sure, it's helped his performance. But what has he gained? 
What meaningful accomplishment is there? At the end of the day, people are going to forget about him. People are going to wrong him when he passes and future generations who've never seen him play before. They'll forget about him just like we forget about famous sports players. So many of us can think of the context we've lived in where we know somebody who was a legend. And then four or five years later, new employees come in, new bosses come in. Who was that? Who was that guy? I've never, never heard of him before. Living for this stuff is microscopic. It is small. It is dark. It leaves us staggering around, stumbling in the dark, just like in that cave. But that is only family, the darkness that is outside of us. There's also the darkness that is inside of us. And I want to make that very clear. It's not just outside. It's not just stuff that's happening to us. It's not just what Satan is doing in the world, behind the scenes in our cultural institutions. Darkness is not just an atmosphere. It's a virus that corrupts our own sin nature. The Psalms talk about this in Psalm 51, how we are conceived in sin and we are born into iniquity. Paul talks about this in Romans 5, how our nature is perverted by sin and that sin leads to death, both in this world and in the life to come. And in John 3, again, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus is saying that because of our corrupted nature, we hate the light and we love the darkness. Catch that we hate the light and love the darkness. And you might think, do I really? I I think you do. Every single person who is born into this world is cursed with two things. That tragic love for the darkness and that hatred for the light. And those attitudes stem from a spirit of rebellion that's born deep within us. Thanks to the sin of our our mother and father and Adam and Eve. Every single one of us is born with a spirit of rebellion that pulls us like a magnet away from the things that we know we're supposed to be doing and towards the things that we know are evil. There's something inside of us that's stronger than our minds, stronger than our logic, stronger than all our reason and all our programs, and that is our lust. At, At a basic elemental level at our human nature it is our lust not our logic that govern us and they manifest themselves sometimes in sex and drunkenness but they also manifest themselves in greed and even things like ambition ambition which i've seen in my own life can be just as destructive as those things ambition that can be the alibi for walking over neighbors and colleagues to get some empty worldly goal that is another example of what that manifestation of inner darkness can look like It's as Jeremiah says himself in chapter 17, our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Our hearts are not good. We are not supposed to follow our hearts, family. Our hearts are not there to lead us to the truth. Our hearts are dark. Just as the world outside of us is dark, inside of us, our sinful nature is just as dark. And if you're not buying this whole idea that you're pulled towards the darkness and you you think that you're actually drawn to the light, Let me show you what Paul has to say about this in chapter 7 of Romans. He speaks about his own circumstances, circumstances I think we can probably identify with. For I do not understand my own actions, he says. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with Allah, and that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. With his mind, Paul wants to serve the Lord. 
But another law, he says, is guiding him. He has the desire to do good, but he does not do it. His mind is speaking clearly, but his will is not following along. He wants to do the right thing, but he does the other thing, the wrong thing. Who will deliver him? Who will deliver us? If we pause and we look at our own lives and we stop our busyness for a minute and we examine ourselves, we will reach the same conclusion that Paul reaches in this passage. We know that we lack the same self-control. And when we indulge in sin, we have the same headaches, the same soul aches that those who live in darkness experience as well. By our very internal nature, we live in a state of confusion. Our souls are in a battle between reason and truth and lust. And oftentimes that battle is a losing battle. In the end, we end up upside down, confused, stumbling around in the dark, unable to see our own hands in front of us. That is the darkness that we face, family. But that brings us to the good news. The third point of the sermon, the light. What we, men and women in this world, need. How we can escape this darkness. Notice in John 8, Jesus is making it clear. There is no other solution. He is the light of the world. The very light that we see at the beginning of creation. The light that has been given to his people. The light that God promises to every single one of us who trust in him. The light that we need so that we no longer live in a space where we cannot even see our own hand before us. In Genesis 1, we see uh, that the very first words that creation spoken were God saying, let there be light. God's light invading the darkness, even before the sun, moon, and the stars. God reveals himself by using his glorious light all throughout scripture. We see this in Genesis 9. Uh, where God promises never to flood the world again by the light of a rainbow. We see this in Exodus 3, where God reveals himself to Moses by the light of a burning bush. We see this in Exodus 13, where God leads his people out of slavery, through the wilderness, eventually to the promised land, by a pillar of fire at night that lights the people and never leaves them. We see this in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1 to 3 where the Messiah is described as a light to the Hebrews, but also in Isaiah 42, where he will be a light to the Gentiles, to you and to me. In Numbers 24, we see that when Jesus was born, his birth was announced by the light of a star, a star that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. In Psalm 119, the Psalms is clear that the word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And in Revelation, when Jesus returns, his light is going to be so magnificent, so wonderful, we will forget about the sun, moon, and stars. He himself will be our light. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 8. He says, He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is good news. Listening to that first part of the sermon, are you feeling discouraged? Are you feeling burnt out? Do you feel as if the whole world is working against you? It turns out you're right. It turns out that the world is working against you. But there's good news. And it's not that Jesus is shining a light in front of you so you can see your hand. It's not that he's asking you to take courage and to storm the darkness. Look at what he says. He who follows me will have the light of life. The gospel is that those who follow Jesus will not have a light shown before them. They themselves will be given the light of life. They will be given the very life that Jesus carries. 
Paul says that in Romans 6, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. That is the good news. We don't get a spotlight showing us where to go. We are given ourselves the light. We are given ourselves the life. And that's crucial. We're given it. We don't go and find it. We don't go and get it. We don't create it ourselves. God, through Jesus, gives us the light. The gospel is about something that God does to you, that God does to me. It's about something that happens in your soul, in the very depths, that part of you that pulls you in a different direction. That's where Jesus reaches into and does a transformative work. The central message of the gospel is that God is doing something to us, not that we are doing something for him. And family, if you've gotten that confused, here's the first day to get it right. God is seeking to do something to you. He's seeking to, to, to do an operation in your life, to do an open soul surgery, if you will, and to change the interests and purposes of your person and bring them back to himself. And that may mean that the world doesn't change, but we change. We get a new nature. We get a new attitude. We get a new heart. John 10 says that Satan comes to destroy, but Christ comes to give us life, abundant life. So now, because of this operation, if you've accepted Jesus' life and light into your life, instead of hating the light as you did before and loving the darkness, you will love the light and you will hate the darkness. Matthew 5 says that your lusts will now be challenged and replaced by a hunger and thirst for righteousness. In 1 Peter, we will become like newborn children, craving spiritual milk. And for anybody who has newborn children, that is a serious craving. I've gotten some experience with that the last five or six months. That's us when we accept the good news of the gospel. In Romans 8, God is doing an operation, again, an open soul operation, setting us free from the law of sin and death. And in Colossians we see that we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God. God's forgiveness. When you accept God's forgiveness, you were in a kingdom of darkness. You belonged to the ways of Satan. But when you accept God's light, there's no room for you there. There's no room for light. You are transferred to the kingdom of God. And that gives you a whole new way of thinking about life. It gives you a new set of goals, a new outlook. It gives you an eternal perspective. It is like a seed planted in your soul. And when it flowers, it turns into a new attitude about everything, about your money, about your stuff, about your house. All of that is viewed not as an end in and of itself, but a means to a greater end. That greater end being telling others about the good news that saved you. You begin to realize that God could have wiped you off the face of the earth. But he chose not to because he showed you mercy and compassion and love. And that transforms you at your core. Not because of something you've done, but because of what God has done to you. You are no longer stumbling around the dark because you have the light of life. That is the light that Jesus is speaking about in John chapter 8. And so that leaves us, that leaves us with a challenge, family. And uh, I think it's important to note uh, that there's another passage that speaks about the light of the world in the New Testament. It's in Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16. This is Jesus speaking at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you, speaking to his disciples, are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all of the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
Of all the I am statements that we're going to study, family, this is the one I am statement that connects back to the church. We're not the gate. We're not the good shepherd. We're not the bread of life. But we are given the light of Jesus. And as the church, we have a responsibility to, like Jesus in this world, be the light of the world. To model what it looks like to follow Jesus in all of his ways. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who uh, is a favorite commentator of mine, um, he says that we should never separate John 8 from Matthew 5. That these two passages always have to be linked. When we say that we're the light of the world, it's because Jesus said he's the light of the world in John 8. And when Jesus says he's the light of the world, he's speaking about us as a church carrying that light forward. And we are called essentially to succeed where Israel failed. In many ways, if you look at the Old Testament, Israel was called to be a light to the world. And they struggled and they failed. And as the church, we carry that responsibility forward. That's what N.T. Wright says in his own commentary on this book. And today, as we know from Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, we are the hands and feet of Christ. So what I want to do then is I want to leave us with two challenges. The first, for those of us who have not chosen to follow Christ yet. For for some in this room today, there may be people who have not joined, who have not asked for Jesus' light in their life. This is the opportunity to do that. You knew, even before I started preaching, that there was a darkness in this world, a darkness in you, that you could not solve. You've probably tried to solve it. You've probably tried to remedy it. And it hasn't worked. And I'm not saying that accepting Jesus will fix all your problems. That's not true. In fact, some of your hardships will be more difficult. But if you choose to follow Jesus, if you choose to accept that life, you will have a joy. You will have a purpose. You will have a meaning in your life that you've never seen before. You will be, as C.S. Lewis said, you will go from the kid playing in the mud who thinks he's happy, who thinks he's content, who's making castles and mud pies, to being taken on a boat, taken out into the ocean, seeing the sunset, having never known that before. That is what it is like to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It's to go from a life that was defined a certain way to a broader life. A life that is full of meaning and purpose, thank you, thanks to the sacrifice of Jesus. I invite you to do that now. And I invite you because when Jesus says, if you ask for him, he will answer. And he says that when you knock, he will open. And because he created the church to be able to come alongside you... That's what we all are here. The people who sit around you are a body of believers who are willing to welcome you into the family of God for the first time today, to support you, to provide assistance, to care for you, to walk with you shoulder to shoulder, side by side, walking in the footsteps of Jesus together. That is what this church is here to do. That is what we're called to do. And we would love, we would love for you to be a part of this family, to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. There's another challenge, though, family, and this is for those of us who who do follow the Lord, who are part of this body. That is this idea that light exists to dispel the darkness. We've been using this metaphor, uh, light, and we haven't really just kind of sat and thought about it for a second. What is the principal purpose of light? It is to expel, to displace darkness. You turn a light on because the room was dark and you need to be able to see That is the purpose of light. That is why we have light. There's some secondary benefits like warmth and beauty. But at the end of the day, what light exists to do is to dispel darkness. Think about uh, the Home Depot light section for a minute. I don't know. Are we more a Home Depot or Lowe's church? I'm not really sure. I think we're more Home Depot. I'm hearing a lot of Home Depot, Home Depot. 
I'm more of a Home Depot guy. I don't know why, probably because I went there the first time. But if you go to the Home Depot in Harper Woods, there's this section in the back left hand of the store when you walk in. That's the lighting section. We all have our own images in our mind, and it's really bright, and there's all these lamps and lanterns and light bulbs, and they're all turned on, and they draw you over there. So it's a little weird that all those lights are on, but it's not that strange because the rest of the store is also well lit. There's these giant fluorescent can lights that hang from the ceiling and it's, it's not like those lights are needed for other purposes but imagine for me if the home depot store suddenly lost lights except in that light section and besides a, a couple of flashlights or a couple of dim lights the rest of the store was basically dark wouldn't the home depot have a responsibility an obligation a duty to take the lights that still work from the lighting section and to spread them out And to dispel the darkness that exists in their store to make sure that their employees and their customers don't trip and fall and hurt themselves. It would be be nonsensical to concentrate all of that light in one corner of the store. I would say it would be irresponsible to do that. Sometimes, family, I wonder if the way that we behave as an American church and even as our church here, sometimes... If we are like that well-lit section in the corner, surrounded by a store that is in the dark. In our nation, we are very fragmented as a society, and we're getting more and more fragmented. Many of you know that we're becoming more segregated every day by race in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our churches. Uh, Many of us know that the the political partisanship in this country is reaching an all-time high because we're fueled by social media that has algorithms built into it to become echo chambers, so all the stuff we hear, we like. And and the effect of, of being racially segregated, of being politically segregated, of being segregated in other ways is that we lack empathy. We lack the ability to understand people who are different than us. We don't have shared experiences anymore because we're all siloed off with people who are like us, with people who have the, the same values and the same ideas, and it's, it's just more comfortable that way. But when we encounter somebody who's different, we're not able to empathize with them. And I love that our church takes intentional steps to, to try to, to change that dynamic in this congregation. Uh, one of the ways that we do that is we actually ask many of us to move into and live in this community. And that's true for just about every member here. Some of you moved from, from far away. Uh, some of you moved from in Detroit, from another neighborhood to this particular zip code. Uh, some of you have stayed here even when you uh, could have left. Some of you have been long-term in this neighborhood and you could have moved to a suburb, but you chose to stay because of the calling of this church. And, and some of you came back even though you had no reason to come back, even though you had every reason to stay, to try and get away. And, and I love that. I love that we have this commitment together that is trying to break down that fragmentation I was talking about, trying to build empathy, trying to invest in this community. It's something that binds us. It's something that's extremely meaningful. But moving to this community in and of itself is not the goal. Moving and living in this community is the goal. Living here, being present here, being ambassadors of the light in this community. And so what I want to ask you to do is to take time and and take an inventory of how you spend your time on a day-to-day basis, on a week-to-week basis. Ask yourself, how much time do you spend in our sidewalks, in our schools, at our parks, among our neighbors? There are places all around us that need the light that you and I bear. 
And I think if we take that inventory, we'll start to see that maybe we aren't spending as much time in those spaces as we could, as maybe we should. Remember, we moved here for that purpose. And, and I'm thinking about this family because I see it in my own life. And then just to give you a couple of examples, I love playing basketball. Um, I haven't played since the summer when I hurt my knee. But uh, when I first moved here, I played at Pingree somewhat regularly, usually maybe every other week. I haven't played at Pingree in three years. I have talked about putting a hoop in my own yard, and, and I may still do that. But it's worth asking the question... When I live less than a block away from a park where people play basketball all the time, people that I moved here to serve, why have I not played basketball there in three years? I'd say it's a mix of, of uh, priorities um, and probably some pride. Probably being concerned about not playing as well as I would like to. Um, there, there are other examples, too, that I can think of. I, I went to a Pingree Park Community Association meeting a few months ago, and I used to go to those every month because it was my job, too. I was the executive director at Mac Development. I went back in December, and it was like a, a high school reunion, like they hadn't seen me in 10 years because they hadn't seen me in two years. It had been a long time. Um, and, you know, I've, I've tried to make decisions to invest myself in the community in other ways. I'm on different nonprofit boards, but, like, those are people I built connections with, and I hadn't seen them in a really long time. It's worth asking the question, why? Why, why has my time been being spent in other ways? I, I study a lot. Uh, I don't have to study at the law school. Why do I always study at the law school instead of somewhere here in the zip code? It's, it's worth asking that question. We have a son. Um, he's going to be growing up. He's going to have to decide where to go to school, where his sports are, where his activities are. If we just follow the default course, I'm sure we could get him uh, anywhere. I'll be a lawyer at a big law firm making a bunch of money. I could send him probably anywhere he wants to go. But if I'm asking myself the question, why did I move here? Why is my family here? Maybe that will lead to a different decision. I guess what I'm saying, family, is I think sometimes as much as our mailing addresses are here, I'm not always sure our hearts are. And, And I say that. It's a hard statement. I think we serve in so many ways. I do not want you to think that I'm telling you you need to follow a certain schedule or that the Bible demands a certain schedule. That is, that's pharisaical, okay? But I do not want fear of sounding pharisaical to stop you and to stop me from questioning every expenditure of our life and to look and say, what does it mean to be the light of the world in this community? So that's a tough statement. Um, I get that. I think this whole sermon has a lot to think about. And so what I actually want to be able to do is I want to to give us a second to pause and to reflect. Uh, Again, for those of us who don't know the Lord, to ask yourself, do you want to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? And then for those of us who do know the Lord, to ask ourselves, man, I moved here for a purpose. I moved here to be the light of the world in this community. How am I doing that? I want to give us a chance to think about that. Um, And so what we're going to do is actually kind of participate in an exercise of sorts. Um, I've asked a few different members of our congregation to help me with this. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn off all the lights in the sanctuary. Um, And I'm going to read a passage that uh, starts off a series of passages that will be read. Each person who will read the passage will hold a candle uh, that we will light as they read. And by the end, there will be a perimeter around this room with the lights off of people who have held candles who have read Old Testament passages and New Testament passages speaking to the light of the world. And so I'm going to ask uh, that those of you who are not holding those candles to just uh, sit 
and to pause. Uh, Matt Schmidt is going to play the piano for us as well, um, our, our old piano here. And uh, I would just ask that you use this time to think about what we've discussed, think about what we've learned, to listen to the Bible as it's being read, um, and to use this as an opportunity to reflect. So I'm going to turn the lights off now. I'm going to read the first verse. And again, I ask for you just to to participate and, and to reflect. Genesis 1, 1 to 4. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Exodus 13, verses 21 through 22. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. Psalm 43, verse 3. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Psalms 27.1 The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalms 119.105 Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Proverbs 4, 18 through 19. But the path of the righteous is like the light of the dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Isaiah 58, 6 through 8. Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. Healing shall spring up speedily. Uh, your, your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. <laughs> Isaiah 61 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth. 
and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. John 1, 4 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Matthew four sixteen. The people dwelling the darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Matthew 5, um, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Ephesians 5, 6-11 Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take not part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. First Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. First John 1.5-9 This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Amen, family. I pray you're encouraged. I pray that if you have never followed Jesus, you would choose to do so today. If you already have made that choice, 
pray that you would be reinvigorated with your purpose as ambassadors of the light. Join me in prayer. We, Father, we are so grateful for you. You are the lamp of charity which never fails. You burn and shed your light on all those around us. And by your brightness, we have a vision of the holy city where Jesus will be the light that replaces the moon, sun, and stars. As you have taught us today, Father, give us the grace to follow you, to give up the darkness, to accept the light of life. We cannot do it on our own. We need you. Give us grace as we do that, Father, as we make mistakes, as we stumble. Help us not to give up, but to always push ahead, trusting you, loving you. Amen.